0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hui Mai, Assistant Professor of Premodern Chinese Literature at the University of California, Los Angeles, and I'm your host of the channel today. So today we'll be talking to Timothy Brook um, about his new book, The Price of Collapse, The Little Ice Age and the Fall of Ming China. Timothy Brook is a distinguished historian of China with a primary focus on the social and cultural history of the Ming dynasty. While his expertise lies in early modern China, his research actually extends across centuries encompassing topics from the Mongol Yuan dynasty in the 13th century, all the way to global historical perspectives on major issues. So Tim, welcome to the show. Um, Can you begin by telling us a bit about yourself
2: well, I'm a historian of the late Ming, but uh, over the course of my long career, I've managed to uh, use that specialization as a way, fr- as something that I could step away from and think about some of the larger issues that are that that the late Ming suggests, going back earlier to the Mongol period and then coming all the way forward um, into the 20th century. And uh, I guess I'm, I, I think of myself as a world historian as much as I am a China historian, although, um, and, and that was just something that developed over the course of my teaching, that in, in trying to make China uh, meaningful to students, I really needed to take a broader perspective because my students weren't mostly Chinese. And I think I've benefited hugely from that so that i'm both thinking about china and the world simultaneously on any historical project that i undertake
1: thank you um and as an educator myself i can totally um, identify with what you just said about contextualizing chinese history and sort of the bigger framework of world history
2: so if um, i I can add one other thing here Um, I'm going to state the obvious which is I am not Chinese. I'm an outsider to Chinese culture and uh, while that is sometimes a disadvantage I find it intellectually mostly an advantage because I'm able to I'm not trapped inside a kind of idea of China. I'm outside that idea and it, it allows me to think about setting China within the world not within its own terms.
1: Yes, I can completely see that angle shine through uh, in your newest book today, which is our topic today. So um coming to the book, can you perhaps say a few words about what the price of collapse is about?
2: The price of collapse is an analysis of price catastrophes during the Ming dynasty. And by price catastrophe, I, I really mean the price of grain. When did grain become unaffordable to most people during the Ming dynasty? And there are seven, I have, I've identified seven periods within the, the, well, more like six periods within the dynasty when grain became unaffordable. And the book then analyzes that pattern and uh, seeks to correlate it with larger global events Thank and you most, most specifically uh, global climate events.
1: Thank you. So in the preface, you mentioned that the book had a previous life, right which, is quite different so many writers including myself can relate to the experience of our work shifting and evolving uh, during its lifetime so especially when we're working with sources from ground up so to lead us into the book and for the interest of those who might currently be living through their books many iterations can you say something about the prehistory of the book and how you figured out that the book you wanted to write was actually something else
2: Yes, I I would very much like to talk about that. I started collecting price data about 25 years ago. And the reason for collecting prices, well, I suppose it's uh, to help me ground some kind of an economic history of the Ming, although I'm not an economic historian. I felt that it was necessary to understand what did things cost? Who could afford these things? How much of these things could they afford? So I started collecting price data 25 years ago, with the idea that it would help me understand everyday life in the Ming, I discovered that, um, well, I knew from the beginning, there was no clear price archive. And so over these 25 years, I've collected prices from here, there, and everywhere, um, most profitably from government sources. And then um, I started uh, trying to write an account of of the price regime of the Ming Dynasty, how prices changed during the Ming Dynasty, why they changed, what that might tell us. And I ended up, uh, well, this was, I ended up writing this during COVID years, so I was sort of stuck at home and I just wrote a larger and larger and larger manuscript about what things cost in the Ming Dynasty and gradually came to realize that this is really of no interest to anybody but me and two or three friends that who who wants to sit down and write and read 130,000 words on what things cost in the Ming dynasty so um and i shared this with an uh, a friend of mine who's an editor and her response was well, she didn't phrase it this way but this is how i interpreted it that what i should do is i should look for the book inside the manuscript and for me the book inside the manuscript was this account of climate change the impact climate change had on agriculture and then the threat to people's lives that came about when grain was not, when it was became impossible to grow grain in the fields so the book the book started out as this sort of a huge compendium of information and then um and then I whittled it down. I And I, the, the whittling down took about two months. It was, it was really fun to take this big lumbering manuscript and then cut it back to try and tell one particular story. And it's the particular story of the relationship between grain prices and climate catastrophes in the Ming Dynasty.
1: Wow, that sounds fascinating. It almost feels like you are sculpturing away the noises to find the actual story. Um,
2: Yes, and um, I had I had for the first manuscript I'd collected all of this data I made these long charts, and then I thought this this is of no help or interest to anyone. And I, as a historian, I like to write for more than my close circle of late Ming studies friends. I like to write for them, but I also like to take what I've discovered and offer it to a broader audience. So I realized that I I needed a much more streamlined uh, book. So it went from 130,000 words down to 80,000 words. And I think it's much better for being shorter and more focused.
1: It is amazing story. And uh, we do still get a lot of the prize information in chapter two at the very least.
2: Yes, yes. Which we will talk about soon. You're, you're very alert to that. Chapter two is where I kind of try and boil down a lot of that price information and give it to the reader in a way that might be useful for the reader, but doesn't burden the reader as much as it did in the original version.
1: Sounds great. So before we dive into chapter two, let's jump back a little bit. So um, your story in chapter one actually begins with this figure whose name is Chen Qida. Right. So um, can you tell us a bit about uh, this particular historical character and why do you choose to begin your storytelling with this particular uh, moment in
2: history? Hmm. Well, Chen Xida was a school teacher in Tongxiang County, which is about 100 kilometers southwest of Shanghai. We know really almost nothing about him, but the reason historians of the collapse of the Ming know him is that the Tongxiang County Gazetteer includes two essays that he wrote, one in 1641 and the second in 1642. And in these essays, he recounts his experience of growing up in the Wanli era and then s- surviving the crises of the Chongzhen era. And he does it in a way that is it's 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 quite tightly focused. It's well written. And um What particularly caught my attention is that he continually refers to prices. That is, when prices rise to the level at which he is experiencing them in 1641, 1642, the the, the entire social order is in chaos as a result of these high prices. So I thought, all right, um, a few historians have noted these essays and have maybe pulled one or two little facts out of them. But instead, I thought, what, I, what I'm what i going to do is I'm going to take these two essays as the core of the book that I, that I am writing. And I I had thought, in fact, of translating the, the full essays. In fact, I've done that, and those translations will appear in a volume that someone else is editing. But rather than give the reader a translation, starting the book with a translation of somebody else's essays, I decided that I would... I would uh, unfold the essays for the purposes of the book, and the purpose of the book being to understand what happened to grain prices and to other commodity prices um, during periods of climate collapse. So uh, Chen Shide becomes my... Um, well, it becomes a way for the reader to sense how it felt to go through the Chongzhen period. I wasn't there. I can't tell you what it was like, but Chen came, And by reading people like Chen Jidu, we can get a sense of his his frustration, uh, the difficulty that he faces, and then how he not just felt about the crisis, but how he thought about it, how he analyzed it, what it meant to him. Because as a historian, um, I'm, of course, alert to issues that matter to us because history is only written in the present. But I also wanted to capture something of how he responded to the crisis as it was unfolding and um and it turned out to be a, a, I think it was a, a kind of useful way it brings the reader in it hopefully catches the reader's attention but uh, uh but it also is a way of raising some of the issues that i will be returning to throughout the book and um and uh, of chen chi we know only what he tells us there's a there's a, a small volume of his sort of homilies about leading a moral life that was published early in the 19th century. And uh, we don't have a biography of him. We only have snippets of insights into that he gives us of his own own life. So um, we don't know much about him, but um, I've put him front and center uh, uh, in the book. And, um, and and find it also a useful device because as I go through each chapter, I can take the reader back to something that Chen t- tells us in chapter one and use that as a way of weaving the parts of the book together into a single narrative.
1: Indeed, indeed. I, I really appreciate how this very specific historical figure actually gives me, as I read through the book, a fine-grained texture of what it felt like and what it actually was like living in that moment in history. Um, And he's almost our, let's say, prize witness, if not prize historian. So talking about prize, uh, it takes us to your next chapter, which I think it's actually uh, a very central chapter in your book, uh, where you constructed what you call the one-lead prize regime. Um, which is a crucial uh, sort of idea and concept uh, that the book puts together. So can you explain what you mean by price regime and perhaps highlight some of your findings that are unexpected for our audience here?
2: Well, by price regime, I mean, uh, the prices by which people live and organize their lives and, every we all live within a price regime we know what the cost of a cup of coffee or a loaf of bread is going to be or we have an idea of what it should be price regimes are connected to our experience as buyers and sellers but they're also connected to our idea of what is fair that that a price regime usually includes the notion of a fair price what are prices what are what are the appropriate prices you pay for something So what I wanted to do is give uh, readers a sense of what things cost during the Wanli era, um, how much people could earn during that period. And uh, what I do is end up putting together um, two baskets of goods, to use a a concept that is familiar to uh, from this period in European history, which is what a household needed in order to survive. And um, and I distinguish as some European historians have done between a subsistence basket and a respectable basket. So a subsistence basket is what's the bare minimum you need to survive as a household. And a respectable basket is uh, what do you end up spending in order to maintain a respectable level of, of living? My. I, I do this rather in a rather sketchy fashion. I mean, not sketchy in, a, in the sense of irresponsible, but um, I just sort of sketch out what the components might be in the basket. And I, I come up with a, with a, a figure, uh, it's more of a kind of cost of living um, estimate uh, that a subsistence family required 14 tails of silver income a year in order to survive. And a respectable family required about 23 tales. So it, it this is to give the readers a sense of what is money worth, what do you have to spend it on. And um uh, and it and it, it it goes back to my the original plan with this book, which is to try and understand how did how could people afford to live in this period in China? Now, Chen Xida. Standing there towards the end of the Chongzhen era, looking back, sees the Wanli era as this wonderful time when, when prices were fair and affordable and everyone could afford what they needed. Uh, it's a bit, he idealizes the Wanli era. Uh, but I felt that by going back to the Wanli era, we could sort of just get a sense of what things cost. And it gives them, the reader, a base from which the reader can anticipate or, or can sort of evaluate the prices to which grain rises in the Chongzhen era, which uh, are, are enormous. I mean, uh, in his first essay in 1641, uh, Chun observes that the price of rice goes 10 times higher than its normal price. And then in his price, well, his essay in 1642, he's not quite so, uh, He's not quite so explicit, but it it goes even higher than that. And um, so, if you, if if we think in our own terms, if it costs, if you leave the grocery store and you've just paid ten times what you would have have paid a year ago, um, you'd be in a state of shock, and that's that's the state in which which uh, Chanshida is. Um, also, in that chapter, I try and just give readers a sense of how people kind of tracked prices, how they thought about prices, and um, to give them a sense that China in the late Ming is not all that different from the world in which we live today. I mean, we track prices. We're appalled when prices become unfair. Uh, and we take changes in prices as kind of a barometer of the health of our society, and that's exactly what um, what I what I hoped the reader would find in in chapter two.
1: Thank you. That that's amazing, and especially as we're also living through price regime change, even it's just a smaller scale than ten percent. Yeah, we see it in everyday oil, uh, gas prices. <laughs> um, so yes, that's amazing. So um, after chapter two, where um, you sort of established this key concept of price regime, um, in chapter three, you actually take a little bit of roundabouts and take us beyond Ming China, beyond that particular historical moment that Chen Shida was in to examine maritime trade, right? Leading up to 1640s. So why did you choose to explore let's say, silver prices and maritime trade in the larger context in Chapter 3?
2: Well, in a general sense, it allowed me to frame the Ming in its global context, and to give readers a sense of what's going on in the world while China is, is going through what it's experiencing. But there's a particular historiographical reason for including that chapter, and that is What, 40, 50 years ago, the first suggestions as we began to understand more about the role of silver in the emergence of global exchange in the 16th century, um, the, the, the proposition was put forward that the flow of silver into China both disturbed, both well drove and disturbed the Ming economy. And that when the flow of silver contracted in the late 1630s, early 1640s, that that contributed to the fall of the Ming Dynasty. Um, the one scholar who has resisted this uh, argument uh, in more recent work is Richard von Glahn at UCLA, who's 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 done it from an economic history point of view. I'm not an economic historian, um, but what I did, what I do in the chapter is think about all right, how much silver is flowing into China what impact is that silver having elsewhere in the world? And um, the more recent historiography of uh, early modern Europe has suggested that, I mean, th- this this thesis that the arrival of silver disrupts an economy is something that was developed in, in, in early modern European history. And that thesis has been somewhat revised uh, to suggest that the, the flow of silver into Europe in the 17th century Really had a very small role to play in the in the inflation of the of the first hundred and thirty years of of contact between Europe and the Americas. There are many other factors involved, and we have to look at those other factors. You know how how does currency work? How does debt work? And and, and so forth. It's a, it's a more complicated story. So the reason I I go into uh, the flow of silver and maritime trade is to give the reader a sense of why I don't really uh, accept the idea that silver is the problem that is causing grain prices uh, to become unaffordable, which in turn is causing the economy to collapse. Uh, so I, I want I want to set that at rest but I also use it as a way of, as I said earlier of of sort of orienting the reader, to the global context. And so I, I follow a few Chinese commodities into, into South America and into Mexico and watch what, what, what Chinese commodities are doing there. And in fact, you know, silver is flowing one way, Chinese commodities are flowing across the Pacific. These are having an impact, but they are not creating crisis. And we find both in, in the historiography of China and the historiography of the new world, there have been scholars who have said, well, the flow of silver is disrupting everything and, and creating a mess. And I don't think that that was the case. Um, partly it's because the, the Ming economy was so huge that the amount of silver coming in was just not sufficient to cause the disruption that that, that original hypothesis suggested. Now, that said, I really, when I was a graduate student and reading the work of of uh, Bill Atwell and, and Fred Wakeman who touched on this, the, these questions, I admired tremendously what they were doing because it was doing what I wanted to do as a historian, which is to situate China in a more global context. Um, but now at this, the other end of my career, I've decided that no, silver is not why the Ming fell. Silver is not the cause of the disruption and we have to look to other factors.
1: Indeed, it's fascinating how this chapter while well, drawing our sort of um vision a bit beyond what was happening in Ming China at that moment, but also it kind of prepares the way for me as a reader to see the bigger picture, right? Which takes us um very nicely to what you're gonna tackle on uh in chapter four, which is the real cause of the famine price of grain. Um where we arrive at the core phenomena the book actually is trying to wrestle with, uh, the fall of Ming Dynasty due to climate uh, rather than moral fa- failure, as Chen Qida would assume. Okay. So how did this immense global condition of climate factor into Ming's inevitable collapse? Where does grain prices fit in? Right. And what does this mean for Chinese historiography?
2: Well, agricultural economies the world over are vulnerable to the amount of solar energy that that that, that reaches the grain fields. And uh, we've had um, now, I mean, European historians for several decades now have been writing about the impact of the Little Ice Age on, on European agriculture. Curiously, almost no one has looked at the price of grain as a documentary proxy for climate change. And the more I the more I looked for data, um, I realized that my best data for the Ming Dynasty are the prices to which grain rose during climate catastrophes. And I, I found this data in local gazetteers. I mean. Uh, some local gazette, uh, every local, almost every local gazetteer has a list of disasters and portents that they usually sort of bury towards the end of the book. And I, in in one out of every two or three gazetteers, those that disasters list will include a few grain prices. So I started collecting these data. I must have looked at about 3,000 gazetteers in the course of, of pulling this data together. And I realized. That's this is my most robust data. That is, it's the data that is consistent, it's spread over time, and it also usually comes with a bit of information, like the reason why the price rose. And it could be uh rarely is cold. It's usually drought or flood, or sometimes, sometimes the, the, the gazetteer editor just says there was a famine and the and the price rose to that to that height. So when, when I put all of those famine prices together. I developed a chronology of disasters. The, 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 the first really serious crisis is in the 1450s. There are minor crises for the next century and then it's it's sort of in the middle of the judging period, the next one then in the late uh, the late 1580s, uh, a much more severe crisis and that comes again, uh, in the late 1610s, and then um, and and so, looking at that chronology, I thought, all right, what does this chronology correspond to? And the, the the obvious answer was that changes in climate. Now, there there, the study of Chinese climate by climate historians has been going on for a couple of decades. Um, cl- Chinese climate historians haven't used prices as as documentary proxies for climate change but I found that when I aligned my data with their data um there was a very close correspondence and as you would expect uh, famines are caused because the food the food crops do not mature in the fields they are not harvested and the people do not have anything to eat so it, it, at, at a logical level it's it's a very basic connection that i'm proposing between climate conditions and the price of grain the interesting thing though about the price of grain is that it uh prices are a quantitative measure that is if the price doubles that's that's severe at the time but if the price increases tenfold then we know that the scale of the catastrophe I don't know if we can say it's five times greater than if the price doubles, but we know that we know that the scale is much greater. And certainly um, as we move through the Ming, the scale of price distortion becomes just gets goes higher and higher and higher, really striking in the 1580s uh, during the Wanli period and then um, unprecedented during the second half of the Chongzhen era, when prices go to levels that are are just beyond the ability of anyone to afford. And so I thought, okay, this is my best data, so let's make this the core of the book. Let's think about how Chinese experienced the Little Ice Age, rather than just how Chinese experienced um, unaffordable grain prices. And um, and I, I'm I'm pleased to have made that connection because the concept of the Little Ice Age is first coined to characterize the kind of the North Atlantic world of Europe and North America. And um, those who work on the Little Ice Age have have over the last couple of decades have extended it to the throughout the Northern Hemisphere, with some acknowledgement that that it went on in China. And but what I've been able to show is that the impact on China is just as strong as it was in Europe. And so that China's experience of the Little Ice Age is, Hugely significant for anyone who is interested in the history of the Little Ice Age. I don't know about you, but I'm very
0: busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Thank you, and um, I could say that as a reader, I find it particularly fascinating reading through the data on prices and how the price because it's so everyday and so mundane in a sense, it gives us very concrete handle uh, into sort of getting a feeling of how people navigate daily life, and that's it's such a nice sort of device to connect you know, the large scale climate change on the one hand, and what is happening politically, socially in Ming China at that moment.
2: Good, I'm, I'm glad you you sense that because I'm not an economic historian. I, I don't know, I don't do statistics. I'm not an econometrician. Um, so what I did as a social historian is take my findings and then see how those, how people were affected by the, these intolerable conditions.
1: Yes, thank you. So um, now we are getting to um, the con- concluding chapters of the book, uh, which is chapter five, uh, leading us to the Chongzhen Price Surge. So you begin this last chapter by what I see as a very humbling claim, um, where you actually say that you've written the book as an extended footnote to Chen Xi's record of the disaster of 1960 to 19, uh, sorry, 1640 to 1642. It seems to me that the book is also sort of at the same time trying to merge the horizons between Chen's own world and our world today, Um, and our different language of describing and thinking through what was happening. So can you say a few words uh, about the larger picture and the method that you use here?
2: One of my concerns in that chapter is um, it's a kind of uh, a small historiographical concern, that historians of the early Qing often use prices from the Chongzhen era as, as a sort of normal, fair price of grain, and then they watch what happens to the price of grain uh, in the early Qing. And to me, this is this is uh, an, an unfortunate error on their part, because in fact, the prices in the Chongzhen era are way out of whack with what they were earlier in the Ming. So, so partly what I do in this chapter is, is trying to detect rates of inflation through the Ming to show that the prices in the Chongzhen era were extraordinarily high. And therefore, if we're going to then write a history that goes beyond the end of the Ming, we have to realize that if prices sort of stabilize near Chongzhen prices by the in the 1690s, that this is not... A kind of return to a stable uh, economy of fair prices, because in fact their beginning point is is mistaken. So this is a, sort of an issue uh, for a small number of price historians, but I think it it actually works well because what I'm trying to suggest is that the surge of prices in the Chongzhen era was something that Chinese had to then just live with. The the economy didn't return to the way it was, say, in the 1570s. The economy had, prices had been pushed up to this new level. There were adjustments after the 1640s when when conditions improved somewhat, although the Little Ice Age continues so that by the time we get to the end of the 17th century, uh, the the Wanli era price regime has not returned and will never return. So the, the Qing period, or well, the Qing period, some Qing historians view view the 18th century as a kind of the high Qing when there was prosperity and so forth. I view it as as a period in which the catastrophes of the 17th century have still are still lingering in the way in which people are living. That that the prosperity that they experienced in the early Wanli era has never returned. Uh, prices are still extraordinarily high, and um, the, the the crisis has sort of um, the crisis became normal. It became normalized in some way. So the, the Qing is 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 a period in which the price regime is um, is abnormal. Uh, although Qing historians don't don't can't look back into the Ming very well and understand the changes that have come about. What I what I. What I'm trying to suggest is that the Qing Dynasty was a period of a considerable economic hardship for ordinary people. It was not a; it was a period of prosperity for the wealthy and for the ruling class, and for uh, and for the the people in the Forbidden City. But um, it it was there was a kind of ongoing. Uh, well, we can't call it crisis, but there was uh, there was hardship uh, through the Qing dynasty, and that's its inheritance from the Ming. And um, I'm doing this also in kind of in response to the uh, early Qing attempts to say, well, the Ming was a mess because late Ming people were profligate and they weren't serious about what they were doing and they were immoral and they were not serving the state. Um, this is a this is a narrative that was constructed in order to make the Manchus look good, and many Chinese bought into that narrative. As I mean, they had to. So, so what I do in 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 chapter five is is really uh, attempt to think about what did the the price catastrophe of the Chongzhen era mean in terms of the longer span of Chinese history. And I have some data. I work, I work with I, I, I work with a, a Sunjiang source in order to sort of sketch out this. It needs to be done far more systematically by somebody who is who is an econometrician uh, uh, rather than a social historian. But but I think I've I think I've made a point that is worth considering.
1: Thank you. Um so we're actually um getting to the end of the book. Um and In this moment, I would like to ask you a question about sort of the bigger picture of the book and whether or not there is uh, sort of a useful term or idea um, that you might give the audience to sort of grapple with the book. Um, What kind of insights or understanding would you like them to to sort of go away with um, from the book? And um, what about... Not just within Chinese history, late, late imperial Chinese history, but also environmental his, history and uh, historical writing in general.
2: Well, if I put it in the most general terms, it's um, I want to communicate the idea that China is part of the world. I mean, this is a this is a theme of much of my work, and it's part of the world in the sense that climate history, uh, that that China is conditioned by climate history in much the same way that Europe and other places in the world were conditioned by climate history. So that there is, a, I want to create a more universal, if you like, a more unified history of the 17th century by bringing China's experience with the Little Ice Age into relationship uh, with what uh, Western historians have written about the Little Ice Age. Um, I'm also interested in um, trying to bring our... Our visual focus down to the level at which ordinary people lived. That much of the much of the way in which we write um, history of the Ming and Qing periods is the lives of the lives of the wealthy, the lives of the um, of degree holders, the lives of the politically advantaged, and I. I'm not going to certainly I'm not going to abandon them they're they're useful sources but I wanted to get a sense of what being chinese through this period meant to ordinary people and uh, and ordinary people could not afford the prices to which grain rose and this resulted in mass starvation and flight and cannibalism and uh, and 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 all manner of disruption and I, I wanted that to be be sort of put front and center for the reader as well.
1: Yes, and thank you for this. And I think that not only just the lower bottom of sort of commonness, but also a lot of the, what we think of as literati class, right? They themselves are living through sort of this changes and transitions in some way, um, if not in all of their writings. But prize is such a nice handle. Um, that gives us some picture of how this aspect of life looked like.
2: And and I think I was I was encouraged in this view by the fact that you've got literati of the Chongzhen era writing about prices. And perhaps the most spectacular example of that is the stele uh, from outside Xi'an, that, with which I closed the book in 1643, in which uh, the author, now unknown to us because his name got chipped off the stele, but the author uh, starts with a poem, lamenting the suffering of, of the local people at the end of the Chungzhun era. And then he finishes the Stele with a list of prices, a list of grain prices, which is extraordinary. And so for, uh, for people of that period, the unaffordability of grain was the most shocking experience that they had ever had in their lives. And that then um, sets the conditions under which the Ming collapsed. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine any regime surviving a climate downturn and catastrophe on the scale. So the, the, the traditional explanations that we have about moral failure or administrative failure or uh, failure of leadership in Beijing, those explanations... They're not, they're not insignificant, but they have to be, if we're going to talk about the fall of the Ming, climate has to be the context within which we think about these other issues. And certainly for Chen Xide, there was moral failure. Uh, he was surrounded by moral failure, but he experienced that moral, moral failure because he was experiencing a period of severe climate downturn. And uh, and I would like us as historians to be a little bit more aware of the larger context within which events happen.
1: So I just wanted to sort of add a footnote of how, um, as a reader, I feel about the role that climate and environment play in the book. It is actually um, a quite refreshing angle because you earlier you said um, it's important to sort of take in consideration climate as the context uh, against which historical figures and events happened, right? But reading through the book, I do get the sense that climate is more than the context. It's actually an actor um, who played a relatively significant role in this catastro- uh, catastrophe and the late Ming.
2: Yes, Uh, uh, climate, uh, yes, climate is always context. But in extreme periods, climate, then I think you've phrased it very nicely, climate becomes an actor, because climate determines what people can do. And if you can't, if you can't get any grain to come out of your fields, um, it's not your fault. It's not the fault of the ruling uh, of the ruling family. It's, it's, it's because climate has made it impossible Uh, has reduced solar radiation to a level that makes it impossible for grain to mature in the fields. And, um, and that's a perspective, that's a perspective. I, I suspect that readers today, more so than even 10 years ago, will, will find of some interest as we, as we, as, uh, as the earth's population are dealing with um, some very erratic and extreme climate changes in our own time, that it's it's perhaps useful to be able to go back and look at what people in earlier times did in response. Of course, we haven't we haven't had the extremity of of collapse that uh, uh, that that Chinese experienced in the Chongzhen era, and this is partly because, of course, we have agricultural science um, uh, enables us to 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 sort of um, mitigate some of the effects of of climate change, but when climate, when climate, when temperatures fall as severely as they did in this period, um, there's nothing you can do. And um, and I don't mean to sound hopeless, uh, but I do mean for us to bear in mind that under certain kinds of global crisis, um, the options are going to dwindle and we need to we need to think about this we need to be aware of this
1: and um one of the questions that i had when i was reading your book um sort of i was thinking if we could sort of tell chen Qida, <laughs> this is what was happening it's it's not all about moral failure and so on and so forth it would be interesting to, to sort of imagine as sort of mental uh experimentation how this historical figure would respond to our new set of explanation or interpretation of what was happening.
2: Well, I think, yes, he would He would be surprised by our explanation, but he wouldn't be entirely surprised because for him, it was heaven, heaven was acting. And for us, um, climate, maybe climate is not a bad way to translate the Chinese word tian because Tian is the is the kind of the the universe that unfolds us. Uh, tian acts um, not always uh, in a way that is beneficial to people. Um, now, the idea of heaven, of course, has the heaven in in the in the late Ming context is something that is has a sort of consciousness that is going to punish the wicked and and support the good and climate has no such consciousness so um, we in, we and chun are, are kind of on different pages but I, I think i think uh uh chun would be be willing to listen to our explanation of what he was undergoing
1: especially both of us seem to be putting some kind of agency and yes. what humans can do or cannot
2: yeah. do because because uh, i mean chun and his fellow and uh, the farmers of Tongxiang um they were their agency was taken away from them by by the 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 climate downturn and to some extent um, climate is removing agency from us today in 2023
1: so Tim thank you so much for taking us through the book um now let's shift gears and uh let's focus a little bit um on the broader issues of doing history and um, on the craft of writing. So I really appreciate how you stage an unexpected encounter in the book between climate history and price history, between late imperial China and global early modern and sort of in this process, augmenting the voice of Chinese history and what Chinese history could bring to global issues like climate change and environmental history. So how are you um, leveraging pre-modern Chinese sources to engage with these current issues and debates that confront us today?
2: Well, one of my goals with the book is to bring China into um, discussions of history anywhere in the world. That is, China is not its own separate case uh, in which Chinese are dealing with Chinese institutions and culture and so forth. Of course, they are. But um, my 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 goal here, in, in in bringing in these the comparisons with what's going on elsewhere in the world, and connections with what's going on elsewhere in the world, is for us to see to begin to see China as, and I'm going to use the adverb simply as simply part of the world. China is not its China is its own case in some sense, but if we continue to narrate Chinese history as though it's something that you can only understand from a Chinese point of view, I think we're missing a great deal. I mean, that is important for understanding culture and society and, and political traditions and so forth. But um, China is simply part of the world. And um, I'm hoping, I mean, I, I suppose I'm going to get more, readers of Chinese history reading this book, then I, I'm going to get readers of history of other parts of the world. I don't know, but it would be nice if the people who are interested in reading about the history of climate were able to read the book. And I, I've tried to write the book in a way that doesn't require a huge amount of knowledge. I'm, I, may, I may have failed in that, in that regard, but my constant recurrence to what ordinary people are experiencing is my way of saying... You don't need to know about how the bureaucracy works, or the examination system, or 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 what Chinese uh, uh, death rituals or family rituals involve. You don't need to know that. You, but you can know about how Chinese people were experiencing what was effectively a um, a global experience. So. Um, so my hope is that I will find a readership outside of the circle of Chinese history, as well as my the readership I already have within within the circle of Chinese history, so that we can um we can be less we can be sort of on the same ground. It's not that Chinese history is this kind of special thing over there that isn't part of the main story. It's very much part of the main story and my goal as a historian through the course of my career has to try been tried to bring china into the world in a way that um respects chinese sources and chinese traditions but makes them accessible to people who are not necessarily trained in those sources and traditions
1: so let's maybe talk a little bit about the writing and the style itself because that is very much part of how you sort of managed to make the book so accessible and um, well, interesting my, my,
2: to my, yeah. my concern is to create a narrative that will draw the reader in and then persuade the reader of the arguments I'm trying to make. So I spend a lot of time with Chen Shida because he's very explicit about what he thinks, and um, he speaks directly to the sort of issues that I'm trying to bring forward. Um, for the readers, so so I I, I can use Chen Shida that way. Um, I get us into chapter three by looking at the comments of a uh, a spokesperson for the the English East India Company on the question of uh, of the global the global movement of of, of silver, um, and I find that if you give readers a person or a situation that they can uh, kind of immediately, not necessarily identify with, but understand. You draw them in better than if you give them broad generalizations, which may sound impressive from a theoretical point of view, but are not really engaging for the reader. And I feel that I have to do that um, because if I were writing just for People who read Chinese history, I wouldn't have to do that as much as I do. But my hope is that I can have some crossover into other fields. And to do that, uh, it, it, you need you need to tell stories that are going to that are going to draw people in, and then give them an intuitive sense as well as a kind of intellectual sense of what the issues are that you're trying to write about.
1: Yes, I can agree that writing a scholarly book for a broader audience is very challenging. And um, and indeed the book is filled with interesting sort of very concrete historical figures and their story, their accounts of the prizes and, and of their experiences, uh, experiences in these uh, historical moments. So um, maybe if you sort of look back in your um, development as a writer especially especially as a storyteller um, who does history maybe can you say a bit more about how you found your voice or your style as a writer
2: well i think i, I I'm, I'm going to mention several things one is that as an undergraduate i studied english literature i only came into chinese studies at the end of my undergraduate period so i was interested in literature the craft of writing before i ever got interested in china and i sort of carry that with me um i mean even in my even even if i go back to my my first serious academic book praying for power i i i bring in stories there it's it's a it's a habit that i think i i developed when i was a when i was a student of english literature um, but it's also um it's also connected to the fact that I'm not Chinese and I would like people who are not Chinese to be able to approach China. And the only way you could do it is through stories where I think really where I developed the um, my style as a writer was through teaching first year students. I, I, for, I've always enjoyed teaching uh, freshman, and I've taught first-year courses in global history, on Chinese history, and I find uh, the challenge of getting first-year students interested in what you're talking about. You've got to give them, you've got to tell them interesting stories. You've got to show them interesting visual materials. You've got to you figure out how to engage them, and um, I mean that's that's where my earlier book Vermeer's Hat came from. That was literally. Uh, Taken from course notes that I on a a first year course that I taught, so um, and that stuck with me ever since. That if if I uh, if I want to approach a larger readership, speak to them as though they're first year undergraduates and um, give them give them as much context as they need to understand what you're talking about, but give them something specific. Give them a story. Give them a figure. Give them a situation. Um give them an object, and use those very concrete things to 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 excite their interest, and then to structure um, what you want to argue as a historian. So I'm, I try to be very careful about about the stories that I use because the stories have to contribute to the to that ultimate goal, which is what is the analysis that is being presented in this book? And does the story help the reader develop a a kind of an intuitive sense of what the analysis is going to be?
1: Thank you very much. Um, As a scholar from China, um, I can actually sort of identify with a lot of things that you you just mentioned, especially about the sort of cross-fertilization between teaching undergraduate classes, um, trying to make them interested or trying to sort of reveal a world of exciting discoveries that they may not think that they're capable of appreciating before coming to the class, Um, that's actually um, quite inspiring as a process for a writer and for a researcher. So um, thank you so much. Um, So, we have taken a lot of your time. Um, before we wrap up though, let me ask you one more question. Uh, what are you currently working on?
2: I currently have two projects. One is um, a res- is, is a study of Cho Jun, who is a mid-Ming, uh, an official who became chief grand secretary. He was also the chancellor of the National Academy in Beijing. And he compiled a handbook for uh, for the emperor uh, which was also so became an administrative handbook of officials called the Das so I've been working with a group of graduate students and scholars for the last 15 years on on this work and trying to understand what 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 did Chinese see as the tasks of state administration so I'm working on that I've got a, a I've got a, 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 a an essay, a, col- a collection of essays by myself and other contributors about Chou Jun's uh, view of Chinese statecraft, uh, and that's a, that's just gone out to uh, a publisher a couple of months ago. So that's one project that I'm working on, and and it's it's again to try and um, give people who think comparatively about state administration give them a sense of what what did it mean to be a Chinese official? What were, what were your goals? What were you trying to achieve? And I think uh, h- historians of Europe will uh, hopefully find this really interesting, because not I would say that Chinese administrators had a much larger repertoire of policies and programs for providing for the people than did European administrators. So that's one project I'm doing. The other project is uh, that I am reconstructing the library of John Selden. Now, I published a book some years ago called "Mr. Selden's Map of China," and it was about a map that John Selden had collected. He's a he's a uh, a, 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 a constitutional law figure of the early seventeenth century. So I've gone back and, and and I'm looking at his library. It was the largest private library anyone assembled from scratch in Britain in the 17th century. And it ended up, much of it ended up at, at Oxford University. And so I'm trying to understand how he created this library, because it's a library that included books in all languages from all over the world. And he had a very, he had a global vision of knowledge. And so... Um, so that's 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 the other project I'm working on. I'm having a lot of fun with that. China plays almost no role in this project, but that's fine. It's it's set in the early, it's it's set in the late Ming period. It's just the late Ming in England rather than the late Ming in China. And um I'm I'm having a lot of fun doing this. And I want this to be a book for general readers to think about what is it to want to learn about the world, not just about your own tradition or your own locality, but to actually assemble uh, 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 assemble a body of texts and learning that embrace the entire world. And it was this was not possible until the 17th century. And so I, I think John Seldon's library is um, is 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 a historically significant fact. And um, I feel like writing a book about it.
1: Thank you. Those sound like fascinating projects. and I can't wait to read them. Um, so, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on a show. Take care.
2: Well, thank you for your interest. and um, And I'm sure we will have further conversations.